Section 107 of the Copyright Act of 1976 permits limited use of copyrighted material for news and educational purposes. This podcast is copyrighted by the Underground Christian Broadcast. Welcome to episode 54 of the Underground Christian Podcast, where the Bible and the 21st century collide head-on in a spectacular display of shock and awe. For those of you who listened to episode 53, the shock and awe was apparent in the end-time events that will usher in the final global government headed not by Antichrist, but by Jesus Christ. That episode provided us a glimpse into our roles in those events, and a little bit afterward, at least those of us who are Christians. But the destruction brought by Jesus is going to be massive and widespread. The question is, why will it be necessary? What will convince Christ's army that it's justified and unavoidable to conduct that kind of an operation? All good questions, so let's start with where we are in the timeline. The American timeline. We're in a presidential election year, and in most presidential election years, our attention is drawn to the election race. We hear the media professionals and social influencers tell us to believe that we can achieve some kind of American salvation through the ballot box. It's a race, and our entire future is riding on winning that race because the nation's survival is at stake. That is the sentiment no matter which side of the political aisle we fall on. In fact, that sentiment is encouraged even on the international stage by no less than one of my favorite soundbite professionals, Yuval Noah Harari, in a recent interview. Are you concerned that Trump might be elected again? I, I think it's very likely. Mm. And if it happens, it is likely to be the kind of like the, the death blow to what remains of the global order. And he says it, and he says it openly. Now, again, it should be clear that many of these politicians, they present a false dichotomy, a false binary vision of the world, as if you have to choose between patriotism and globalism between being loyal to your nation and being loyal to some kind of, I don't know, global government or whatever. The media is trying to get you to believe that this is the most important election ever. An election that will not only determine the fate of America the beautiful, but will determine the fate of the entire international global order. The reality is that there's no actual significance to this election at all. It's just being used to keep the attention of Americans fixed on the shiny thing over here rather than the hidden thing over there. Every magician in the world has mastered this technique. The reason that magic shows are so popular is because the magician is proficient at getting us to fix our attention where he wants it fixed so that we can't see what's happening where the action is really taking place. Politics is just a glammed up, larger scale version of a magic show. It provides a convenient illusion that Americans have the ability to influence the destiny of America and the outcome of the globalist new world order when, in fact, that outcome has been predetermined. Now don't get me wrong, when it comes to the candidates running for office, I have no idea if President Trump or any of the other contenders is a true patriot or a very elaborate and clever plant. And I have no idea if any of these candidates will actually do something to alter the direction of America or disrupt the new world order. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. What I do know is that the people who are advancing this globalist agenda have war-gamed this out so that they will have a response no matter what happens. So should we vote? Sure, go and vote. It won't matter one way or the other, but at least we can make a statement. 
God put us in a country where we have at least some say in the power structure of our government, so we should respect God's decision and participate. Will there be cheating during the election? Yes, of course there will. Will it affect the outcome of the election? Probably. So why should we vote, you ask? Because God demands that we participate in whatever system he puts us in so that we can respect his decision. Well, what if I don't like my choices, you ask? After all, I can't vote for Biden and I won't vote for that pig Trump. Okay, I reply, then vote for someone else. There will be other candidates on the ballot, and if you don't like any of them, you can write in the name of anyone you wish. Maybe you can think of someone who can meet whatever criteria you have for the job of president. But just remember, Jesus isn't running. If he is your standard, then you're always going to come up short on the ballot. I'm not saying that it doesn't matter who you vote for. I'm saying that God expects us to exercise discernment in our voting, but he does not expect perfection. In this political system, we're not expected to vote for a perfect candidate. We are expected to vote for the least awful candidate we can find, based on whatever criteria we use to make that decision. Throughout most of human history and across the entire planet, people weren't given anywhere near that kind of representative power, and in most parts of the earth, they still haven't been. They had to live with whomever they got as rulers. We do too, but at least we get a little bit of input. So by all means, go out and vote. Just don't expect too much salvation from the president because time is running out in the timeline of God and we can't avoid the events of the timeline any more than Jesus could avoid the events of his timeline. He didn't particularly want to be nailed to a cross, but he recognized that being nailed to a cross was in the plan of God and therefore it was his responsibility to endure it. He said, Oh my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Not even Jesus Christ could avoid the timeline of God, and if anyone deserved to avoid that timeline, it was him. So let's skip over all this political intrigue for a moment and move to the end of the timeline to see if we can shed some light on where we are. Near the end of human history, a ruler called Antichrist is going to establish a one-world government, or at least a government that has a substantial influence over the other governments of the world. A one-world government is also the dream of the internationalists, the globalists, most elected members of our own government, at least five of the nine justices of the Supreme Court, the deep state, the intelligence agencies, the cabinet, and at least a quarter of the American citizenry. Since the only people not seeking a new world order at this point are the deplorable people and maybe a handful of loyalist governors, there's not a whole lot standing in their way except us useless eaters. But don't worry, they have a plan for that. It is a faint accompli that a new world order globalist governmental system will be established, and at some point the reign of Antichrist will begin. According to my reading of prophecy, the Antichrist government will be headquartered in the Middle East, specifically in Jerusalem, Israel. That government will be founded on the tried and true governmental principles of deceit, treachery, violence, and obedience. To discern loyal followers from disloyal, the Antichrist will use a carrot and club separation process. His government will offer unprecedented physical benefits to those who will embrace the Antichrist as their personal savior, and it will enslave or murder everybody else. It's a very simple formula. In Proverbs 30, verses 11 to 14, God had this to say about the generation of people who will opt in for the benefits that the Antichrist's government will offer. It reads, There is a generation that curses its father and does not bless its mother. There is a generation that is pure in its own eyes, yet is not washed from its filthiness. There is a generation, oh, how lofty are their eyes, and their eyelids are lifted up. There is a generation whose teeth are like swords, and whose fangs are like knives, to devour the poor from off the earth, and the needy from among men. The poor and the needy would be the useless eaters in this nation. 
I know it doesn't say that this passage refers to the end time events of the generation that will be on the earth at the return of Jesus Christ, and I'm sure lots of people would interpret this passage differently. But I firmly believe that many, if not most, of these cryptic biblical references are specific to either the first coming of Christ or to the end time events. Now, they may also apply to other times and other events, in part or in general, but they are most applicable to these two Jesus-centric time periods because the first and the second coming of Christ are the two events that define the Bible. In the case of this section of Scripture, it says, There is a generation, a singular construction. Yes, we can generalize it to be applicable to every generation in some way, but then why say a generation, singular? For that matter, why put it into the scripture at all? When I read that kind of specific temporal language, I see a clue from God that he is talking about something very specific, something unique in the annals of human depravity. Without a doubt, the worst generation of all will be the last one that embraces the Antichrist and his government. And that is one reason Jesus will have to burn the whole thing to the ground, just like he told Joshua to do. The book of Joshua and Judges is a lesson about why God has to go to the extreme of destroying an entire system completely. The government of Antichrist is where the world is headed, and someday it is where the world will arrive. If we carefully follow the instructions given to us by Jesus Christ, we should even be able to discern several events leading up to his return. We won't be able to determine the exact day and hour he will come back because Jesus said in Matthew 24, but of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But we should be able to get the approximate time period down because he also said in Matthew 16, when it is evening you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red, and in the morning it will be foul weather today for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites! You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you can't discern the signs of the times. Jesus was angry with the Pharisees and Sadducees because they were the theological experts of the time, and they could not, or they would not, do their job and interpret the scripture to discern the signs that God put right in front of their faces. They stubbornly refused to acknowledge the position of Jesus because their understanding of their theology told them that Jesus could not be the promised Messiah. We get trapped by our interpretations because we cannot or will not admit they are interpretations. So we cling to them as truths because they inform our worldviews and our value systems and speak to our hearts, which are deceptive beyond belief and utterly corrupt. The scriptures were written for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And Jesus was exceptionally displeased that these rabbinical giants were embracing theological prejudice and error to the extent that they could not even read the date on the divine calendar. The implication is that Jesus expects all of God's people to properly interpret scripture in order to discern the signs of their times. So I ask you, do we Christians make theological errors that speak to our own corrupt and deceitful hearts? Errors that will keep us from discerning the signs of our times? Do we even know what the signs of our times are? That's what we're going to look at today, because our leader, Jesus Christ, expects us to know where we are in the divine calendar. We do not want to be part of that generation spoken of a few minutes ago, that wicked and adulterous generation that has teeth like swords and fangs like knives. And that generation is alive right now. That's right. I believe we're in the end times. And in that case, the generation is alive right now because Jesus said in Matthew 24, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. What generation was Jesus talking about? 
He was not talking about the generation he was communicating with, the apostolic generation, because the preface to that scripture was his description of the signs that would immediately precede his coming, the second coming. The generation he was talking about would be alive when those signs took place, and the signs did not happen during the apostolic generation, so it wasn't the generation he was talking about. Nevertheless, he told us what the signs would be so that we could know which generation he was talking about. He wanted us to watch for the signs and understand what they mean, because just before the previous quote, he said, So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near, at the doors. Well, what's near? The return of Jesus Christ. Jesus wants and expects his followers to discern the signs of the time so that the people of that generation can be ready for his return. He added a word of caution to that expectation. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. He will come at an hour we don't expect, an hour being the shortest time scale he references. He said we cannot know the day or the hour because no one knows these things, not even him. So we aren't supposed to predict the day and the hour of his arrival, but we are supposed to be ready when we see the signs. So what are these signs? Have they started yet? And what does he mean by the term generation? A generation is sometimes counted as 20 years, but it can also be counted as the remaining lifetime of a group of people. But which group? Was he talking about children? That could be up to a century. Seeing signs that foretell his coming up to a century in advance would not be very helpful to Christians, so it's unlikely that he was talking about children. He probably did not mean the generic 20-year period of a generation either, because that seems like too much of a date-setting timeline. So it's more likely that he meant some specific age group who would be alive at that time. But which one? When Jesus spoke about groups in the political context, which is the context of his second coming, he always spoke about the generation that was in power at the time. That makes sense because the Bible is a book about governance and Jesus is coming to establish his government. So the generation that will not be dead before all the signs are fulfilled just prior to his return is the generation that is in power at the time of the signs. Since most people in the seats of power are at least in their 40s and often much older, it's a way of saying that it is not going to take very much longer after the start of the signs for Jesus to return to the earth. So which sign starts the timeline running? And where are we now in the timeline? The signs are found in Matthew 24, but to really understand what those signs refer to, we need to add information from two other parallel prophecies in Scripture that refer to the same events. We went over these prophecies in detail beginning in episode 29 and continuing up to around episode 41, so if you want more detail, please go back and listen to those episodes. But we will review the basics here. Uh, by the way, as far as I know, no one else teaches that these three sections of Scripture cover the same events from different perspectives, so you're getting a new interpretation here. However, it should not be an unexpected new interpretation, given where these scriptures are located and what is happening in them. I think the reason no one previously put them together is that it was functionally impossible to see the relationship among them until the events began. But now that we know the technological context of these sections of scripture and what's happening today, their relationships can be more readily discerned. The three sections of scripture are Revelation chapters 2 and 3, Revelation chapter 6, and Matthew chapter 24. I realize that Bible teachers have wildly different interpretations of these sections of Scripture, but we need to set those interpretations aside for a moment so we can evaluate these Scriptures as a whole. Revelation chapters 2 and 3 are known as the letters to the churches of Revelation. The big debate about this section of Scripture is what the churches represent, and there are all kinds of creative interpretations about that. 
I would like to keep the interpretation simple and objective by taking what's written in the book at face value and not trying to generalize the events or spiritualize them into whatever suits our fancy. The most straightforward explanation of what the churches represent would be some aspect of the Church of Christ at different sequential points in the Revelation period. I say they take place in the Revelation end time period because they are chapters in the book of Revelation, which is a book about the end times. So it makes sense that they would refer to specific events in the end times. Since they are at the beginning of the book of Revelation, we might also infer that these events take place at the beginning of the Revelation period. So we're going to use that framework as a working hypothesis for Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Revelation chapter 6 is later in the book of Revelation, so we might be tempted to think that it takes place later in time. However, timing in the book of Revelation jumps around from chapter to chapter, so we have to be careful with that. Chapter 6 also depicts a series of events, just like chapters 2 and 3, so there is some similarity there. Matthew 24 is universally accepted as a prophetic account of the end times by Jesus, so it would occur in the same general period as the book of Revelation. It also presents a series of sequential events that contain the signs that we're interested in. So let's read the first event of each section and put them together. For those who are interested, I usually reference the New King James translation because I find the phrasing and word selection to be helpful in understanding some nuances of the passages. But occasionally I'll use another translation where the New King James version is not as clear as it could be. Let's start with Revelation chapter 2 verses 1 to 7. In the New King James translation, this section is headlined The Loveless Church which I think is an unfortunate heading that encourages the wrong interpretation of this passage. I'll comment on each verse to frame up the overall evaluation. Revelation 2 verse 1 reads, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. So these images refer back to Revelation chapter 1, which established Jesus' credentials and authorship of Revelation. So the passage begins by reiterating who is giving this instruction. It is not John's opinion. It is Jesus' revelation and instructions to the church. Verses 2 and 3. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. So at the start of the first letter, Jesus is patting this church on the back, praising them for the work they're doing. That alone clarifies the type of church that Jesus is addressing within the greater universe of Christian churches. He's not addressing the church universal, that large, diverse group of churches that label themselves Christian, but believe anything and everything under the sun. Instead, he's talking to those churches that recognize what is evil, with evil being defined by the Bible and not by man. He's noting that these churches, or more likely their leaders, can't bear the evil that is defined in the Bible, which implies that they don't allow that kind of evil to be practiced in their local churches or by their members. And which kinds of evil does Jesus specify? Well, it's the kind of evil that some other churches today are practicing. We know this because some people from other churches come to this church and are tested and found to be false teachers. So it's the kind of evil that is defined in the Bible that is practiced by some churches and not by others. That rules out murder, theft, extortion, and bribery since no churches that I'm aware of practice these things. But it would include such biblically prohibited acts as sexual deviancy, homosexuality, occult practices, and child sacrifice. Today, we call that particular evil abortion. How can we know that these are the acts of evil that Jesus finds unacceptable? Because he mentioned them later in the letters to the churches. Jesus, who is God, did not leave us to guess what he meant by evil because he didn't want us to have the latitude to interpret good and evil the way we want. 
That won't do, since our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. He said that some people who called themselves apostles were tested and found to be liars. The word apostle means sent one, and it always refers to the true followers of Jesus Christ who faithfully and accurately transmit the gospel message to the next person or group of people. Those who call themselves apostles but are not are the Christians, pastors, and priests who do not faithfully and accurately transmit the gospel message, usually because they've abandoned the Bible as the true and errant word of God. They use it more as a convenient reference when they need a catchy phrase. These Christians are much more interested in what other people think about them than they are in accurately conveying what God wrote in his book. So they're usually dismissing the Bible as not being the true word of God, but the words of fallible men. A book that may have some useful things in it, but is not God's word. They usually pick and choose what information from it they want to convey, and it's usually in a distorted and inaccurate context. That's the test that shows them not to be true apostles, but liars. So the church that Jesus is speaking to has stood up to the hostile forces of society by calling their acts evil, which has resulted in the church having to practice perseverance, patience, and labor with weariness as they are attacked by the society around them. So that certainly narrows down the field of churches quite a bit. In all of these letters to the churches, there are one or more problems that Jesus identifies and demands to be corrected before citing the solution. And this one is no different. Verse 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. So in this case, the problem Jesus identified is leaving its first love. Now, the almost universal interpretation of this verse is that the church no longer loves Jesus, the thinking being that Jesus is its first love. However, I disagree with that interpretation for one simple reason. Jesus is speaking to his church. If they actually left Jesus, they would not be his church. And even if Jesus was speaking to the generic church universal, many of which have abandoned the real Jesus, they still cling to a kind of Jesus. People who truly abandon Jesus do not ever remain in any kind of church, even the weakest ones. Since Jesus is not speaking to just any church, but to his church, it can't mean that the church has left him. What it more likely means is that the church left the first love of the first church. To figure out what that was, we have to ask what was the earliest event that framed the whole existence of the church. A hint is the phrase, you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not. The first event of the church was the great commission given to it by Jesus Christ. Go, Jesus said. So the first love of the church was evangelism, which is outreach to the lost. This church, while otherwise doing church correctly, in some way stopped its outreach program. And since it's not a single church, but a representation of the church of Jesus Christ in general, something must have caused the church in general to stop its outreach program. But what could possibly do that? It doesn't say, but it does say what will happen to the church if it continues in that condition. Verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. The lampstand symbolizes the spiritual authority given to the church by Jesus Christ, so he's basically threatening the spiritual license of the church if it doesn't recognize what it has done is wrong and repent. Verse 6, But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now this short verse is a very important one because it directly references the kind of sin that the tested apostles, the ones found to be liars, love to embrace. The Nicolaitans believed that they could sin with impunity because the blood of Jesus covered them, and they were particularly fond of sexual sin. 
So the deeds that Jesus refers to are most likely sexual sins practiced by these false apostles or false teachers or false pastors, as well as their church members. Verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So after identifying each problem, the letter concludes with a benefit if the church is able to recognize its problem and correct it. Exactly how it is to correct the problem is not mentioned here, but maybe it will become clear with some more context. So to summarize this section of scripture, the end times church that is loyal to the principles of the Bible will encounter some kind of problem that will impede or prevent it from carrying out its most basic function, that of service and evangelism to the lost. The next section of scripture, one of the two parallel sections, is found in Matthew chapter 24, verse 4. The context is a question from Jesus' disciples as to what will be the sign of his second coming and the end of the age. Jesus responded by saying, Take heed that no one deceives you. In the letter to the church at Ephesus, something impeded the church from doing its job properly, to which we can now add the detail that someone is going to try and deceive the members of the church, or the leaders of the church, or both. Combined with Revelation 2, the church will not only be deceived, but the deception will keep the church from extending outreach to the lost, which is their most basic job. Verse 5, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. So the deception that will impede the church from doing its job will come through many people who say they are the Christ. This is another widely misunderstood verse. The typical interpretation is that these people will say they are Jesus Christ or they are the anointed Messiah of God, but that's not what this means. Jesus said they will say they are Christ. The word Christ is the Greek word Christos, meaning Messiah. Both words mean anointed, which is an official designation of authority that is bequeathed by a ruler to a subordinate. In the Bible, it's often used as a title for Jesus Christ, who was the anointed of God to be a savior, but in general, the context simply means one who has been designated as an official governmental authority or appointee. So Jesus is saying that many people will come as officially empowered representatives of government in order to deceive the people they come to. There may be something about them that conveys the impression that they are offering some kind of salvation, but whatever they are conveying, it is a deception, which is a lie. To find out what that might be, we need to move over to the third parallel scripture, that of Revelation chapter 6, verse 2. Here, John is seeing a vision of images that represent something. It says, And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, it's almost universally taught that the person on the white horse is the Antichrist, and he goes out conquering without using weapons because he has a bow but no arrows. Therefore, he must be a brilliant orator and politician whom everyone loves and believes and follows. However, if this is a parallel passage to the other two verses, this likely occurs before the rise of Antichrist because he has not yet appeared in any of the other accounts. So who is this mystery rider on a white horse? First of all, he is riding on a horse, which we've already seen in past episodes, represents one of two things in John's day. Either senior military leaders or rulers. Horses were expensive, and they were generally reserved for such people and perhaps other wealthy elites. A white horse symbolizes something good, or at least something we think is good. The rider, therefore, is portrayed as someone who is good. Who in our day and age would we normally associate with someone good as a class of people? Certainly not politicians and not senior military leaders, probably not even wealthy individuals. We might think that some of them are good, but probably not most. But there is a group of people whom we reflexively believe to be motivated by goodwill, 
people who offer us a type of salvation from fearful events, even death. They are called doctors and medical professionals. This is the one group of people we have been conditioned to always believe have our best interest at heart because they are health practitioners. Interestingly, what do medical professionals often wear to symbolize their profession? A white lab coat. So what is this rider on a white horse carrying? He is carrying a bow. Now, it does not say he is carrying arrows, which is why many commentators think the rider does not use weapons, but the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. We know he is carrying a bow, and a bow is a weapon of war that is used at a distance to puncture people. The fact that there are no arrows mentioned suggests that whatever the bow is hurling is small and easily hidden. Now, what do doctors normally puncture people with? Well, among other things, syringes. If some kind of weapon were carried in a syringe and doctors whom we trust as our personal health saviors were recommending the thing in the syringe as a sure way to secure health and wellness, especially in the face of a frightening mystery illness, then the entire first part of this three-component prophecy would make a lot of sense. There are many doctors, and they would be deceiving many people, knowingly or otherwise. The stuff in the syringe would be produced at a faraway plant and would have to be delivered over a distance to the target people. And what about the church that failed to do its most basic job? Do you recall what happened just before a recent vaccine was deployed to the world? There was a complete lockdown of society. Churches closed. Pastors huddled in their homes. People in ministry were too afraid to go out and do their jobs, and it took over a year for things to return to normal. Many pastors listened to the politicians and the three-letter government agencies and the corporations and the academics, and especially the doctors and hospital administrators, all of whom were preaching isolation and inoculation as the formula to health salvation in face of a scary COVID monster. So I believe that was phase one of the lead-up to establishing the Antichrist as the ruler of the world. Phase two began in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11, in which the new King James edition headlines the persecuted church. It reads, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. This section of scripture addresses church persecution at the hands of a mysterious group of people who say they are Jews but are not. At this point in history, this church type is suffering financially. It doesn't say why, but it does imply that it's because of something called a synagogue of Satan. Taken literally, the persecution and trouble for this church comes from a group of people who worship Satan within a religious organization, yet they call themselves Jews. But they're not ethnic Jews at all. Do you know of any group of people who might qualify for this description? One possibility are the Ashkenazi Jews who make up most, if not all, of the senior globalist leaders and world bankers. The Ashkenazi are not ethnic Jews at all, but are Khazarian pagans from the steppes of Asia who emigrated into Europe after the Russians devastated their empire. On the way out, the Russians forced them to convert to a monotheistic religion and they chose Judaism to disguise their actual object of worship. They moved into and spread throughout Europe, bringing a tremendous amount of wealth with them from their previous empire, but they harbored a bitter hatred against anyone and everyone who participated in their exile, however indirectly they participated. They were militarily weak, but extremely wealthy, 
So they used their wealth to create banking monopolies that soon controlled the monarchs of Europe through financial means. Today, they comprise the wealthiest and most powerful families in the world. According to the Bible, this group of people will be responsible for police persecutions against church members, including incarcerations and executions. What else can we learn about this time period from the other parallel texts? Matthew 24 verses 6 and 7 say, And you will hear of wars and rumors of war. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So this is the second sign that Jesus' disciples were told to watch for when looking for indications of his return. Now, wars and rumors of wars may not seem very specific to his return, but we should not dismiss them as meaningless signs just because the world has always had wars and rumors of wars. Since that is obviously a true condition of the world at any point in history, that can't be what Jesus meant by this sign. He meant a significant increase in the number, severity, or threat posed by wars and rumors of wars from around the world. The next verse, verse 7, sheds a little more light on this sign. The word translated nation against nation is the Greek word ethnos, from which we get the English word ethnic. It refers not to national governments fighting each other, but to people groups fighting each other. People are going to wage war against each other. There are going to be civil wars and ethnic wars. The term kingdom against kingdom is the equivalent to our government-on-government warfare, but that only comes after the civil and ethnic wars. Civil wars are the response of citizens against the outrages of government, and ethnic wars result from one people group feeling it needs to protect itself from another people group. Governments behaving outrageously towards their own citizens cause civil wars, and antagonistically diverse people living amongst each other cause ethnic wars. That's why our government has opened up the border to unfettered emigration. It is a way to foster and encourage both sentiments simultaneously. It's indisputable that we live in an age where the threat of wars and the actual practice of warfare in faraway places poses an unprecedented threat to world peace and to Christians specifically. We have nuclear weapons in the hands of some governments, and we have chemical and biological weapons in the hands of many more. Wars are raging in Ukraine and Syria and the Middle East, and the threat of war is ever-present around Taiwan and Korea. Illegal arms flow to insurgents around the world, while legal arms are increasingly restricted within the native populations, resulting in the imbalanced arming of foreign intruders and paramilitaries relative to native citizens. All of these actions are destabilizing and encourage conflict. But we've only looked at two of the three parallel passages. What about Revelation 6 verse 4? What does it tell us? It reads, Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. Well, I can't think of a better way to take peace from the earth than to foment a virtual invasion of Christian countries through open border policies, bringing in people as different from the natives as possible, people who have a completely different value system and worldview. And to encourage resentment and conflict, the government that opens the borders could give these invaders special privileges and protections, and then punish the citizens of each nation through oppressive taxation and laws that penalize the citizens to the benefit of the invaders. Then the governments could disarm the natives while secretly arming the invaders and associated criminal organizations and criminal gangs, both of which could peddle drugs and traffic human beings among the natives to erode their civil order and morality. And this is the stage we are at. The killing hasn't begun yet, but it's next on the signs list, followed by a governmental crackdown that will specifically target Christians, followed by famine, followed by dot dot dot. These are the signs that Jesus told his followers to watch for, and all these signs predate the rise of Antichrist.
If we're in the lead-up to the return of Jesus Christ, then this is the generation of leaders who will not pass away until all these prophetic signs are fulfilled. Are you excited yet? Here in America, we have an election coming up, and many, many people think it's going to make or break America. We need to vote for the right person, they say. That will solve our problems. Well, sure, we can vote, and we should vote, but we should not expect salvation to come through a corrupt political process. Instead, we Christians should follow our instructions. We can start by recognizing how we left our first love. Any pastor, church, or congregant that closed its doors and limited its outreach during the engineered COVID scare should seriously examine and reevaluate what it did. Churches closed because the government told us it was too dangerous to remain open because of a virus known as COVID. And that was a ruse because the COVID crisis was a contrived psychological operation. It was partly a technological attack on human beings, first by using some substance that mimics a respiratory virus, and then by ginning up fear through the media of an uncontrollable and deadly contagion. That led to social shutdowns and societal panic so that the public would accept getting injected with a new technology to end their isolation. That's why they wanted to get it. And it worked great. It worked so well that half the public is still convinced that the government was protecting us from a novel new virus. And it will work equally well on these same people when the WHO and the WEF announce that an especially deadly new contagion has arrived that threatens all of our lives. They call that contagion Disease X. The WHO and the world governments and Bill Gates know Disease X is coming because they have designed it and wargamed its rollout. The following is a trailer from a tabletop pandemic exercise known as Clade X that predated the COVID-19 bioweapon release by 18 months. It was sponsored by the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security on May 15, 2018, and it was attended by invited government diplomats, defense officials, three-letter agency operatives, and selected corporate leaders. See what part of this trailer sounds familiar to you. We are continuing our coverage of a new and deadly infectious disease. The virus has some genetic elements of the Nipah virus. The care of these patients requires extraordinary effort. We cannot and will not voluntarily take patients from other hospitals. The creation and intentional release of the Clade X virus. The impact of not doing something has lots of consequences. We can't retreat from the rest of the world. The continuity of government here cannot be overestimated. A federal quarantine of this scale is uh, unprecedented. The question everywhere, when will there be a vaccine? We have got to engage the private sector. They know that we don't have a vaccine yet. They want vaccines to be prioritized. I would not want to pull those people back. And we need on the ground to be able to uh, assure protection of our first responders. This is a non-starter. I'm going to need these people. I got this feeling in a whole lot of other places. More than 40 countries are reporting outbreaks and many more are suspected of having cases. Leadership requires doing things that are oftentimes unpopular. This issue has the amazing capacity to be number 11 on anybody's list of 10 most important items. We have been unbelievably weakened by this crisis. What the world will look like when it's done is still very uncertain. They ran a tabletop exercise to determine how to run a special pandemic operation just months before we had to scramble around and set up a special pandemic response. 
Gosh, I think we had a room full of Nostradamuses there. How lucky could humanity get? Well, the regular listeners of this broadcast might conclude that it was less luck and more like the rehearsing of the world's most elaborate psyop involving a bioweapon masquerading as a vaccine. Let's listen to Sasha Latipova explain that the bioweapon was not actually a vaccine, but rather a medical countermeasure. A countermeasure being a weapon that is deployed to stop or mitigate an attack. It is a military term, not a biomedical one. The term countermeasure doesn't say anything about what kind of attack is being waged, or by whom, or for what purpose, and it doesn't even say anything about the type of weapon that is being deployed to disrupt or mitigate the attack. But it does say that whatever is being deployed is a weapon of some sort. I'm not sure who the interviewer is in this next clip because his identity and that of his channel were not recorded in the video notes, and he didn't identify his show in this part of the interview. But I do know who Sasha Latipova is, and that's what's important. Let's listen to a brief refresher about the lies that have come out of the American government. Well, to our top story now, a bombshell new report shows that the Department of Defense, yes, the Pentagon, controlled the COVID-19 program from the very beginning. And everything we were told was political theater, basically to cover it up, right down to the FDA vaccine approval process. It was all theater. That means that human beings were used as props, essentially. According to newly obtained documents, the Pentagon used a combination of shady approval authorizations that are still in use, including the PREP Act, the Emergency Use Authorization, and other transaction authority, the OTA, all of which shielded big pharma agencies, medical participants that delivered unregulated vaccines from any liability and protected them, basically. We've gone through a lot of these documents and just showed how they are not on the hook for any of this liability. These documents... These new documents were obtained by a former executive of a pharmaceutical contract research organization. That person is Sasha Lidapova, and Sasha joins us now to tell us what she's uncovered. Thank you so much for coming on, this, on the show, Sasha. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. This is intense. I mean, when you first uncovered these documents, did your jaw just hit the floor or did you know that this is what you were going to find based on the breadcrumbs you were already uncovering? Uh, well, I, yeah, I, I, I was really shocked. I was working on this for quite some time. Uh, so I first, my first finding was that these products were not uh, good manufacturing practice compliant. And that I found right away when they started being rolled out due to extreme variability of adverse events and deaths that were reported per each lot of the of the so-called vaccine. So that was very shocking to me as a pharmaceutical um, uh, professional because we know how uh, high quality uh, pharmaceuticals typically must be manufactured. You know, they have to be very, very consistent. There should be uh, practically no variation lot to lot in terms of uh, toxicities or or any other uh, performance characteristics. And these products were varying about thousand times lot to lot. Good manufacturing practices are well-established quality control procedures in America and around the world that ensure manufacturers produce nearly identical products with very little variability between manufacturing lots. This is especially important in pharmaceuticals because the consistency is necessary to ensure safety and effectiveness. Sasha noticed wildly divergent adverse event rates between vaccine lots, which indicate production problems that should have resulted in the shutdown and removal of such lots from the market. But that didn't happen, and Sasha wanted to know why. 
So uh, that was extremely concerning. And uh, I didn't realize why that was happening, but I just knew that they were not good manufacturing practice compliant. I later confirmed that through regulatory documents. And then the final piece of the puzzle was when I uh, was able to see all these contracts from the DOD. They were released uh, based on freedom of information requests and also Securities and Exchange Commission disclosures. I'm going to pause here to emphasize something strange. The COVID vaccine rollout was directed and managed by the Department of Defense, even though the DOD is not a qualified medical oversight agency. More strangely, the DOD's involvement was deliberately hidden from the public until its disclosure was compelled by citizen journalists who did the job of the mainstream media who were, and still are, denying DOD involvement. As I've said before, the DOD is not in the business of saving lives, but of taking them. Keep that in mind. And uh, when I saw those contracts, there were around 400 that are now available for all COVID, so-called COVID countermeasures, including vaccines. Um, I realized that was really what was going on. Uh, The Department of Defense uh, used very um, shady contracting practices and also used several uh, laws that were put in place previously, previous to COVID, to, uh, to do this, to shield pharmaceutical companies, to not conduct you know, proper clinical trials, uh, to do a lot of uh, fraudulent, I would say manipulations of public perception um, and all in collusion obviously with mainstream media and these pharma companies. And so as a result, we have this theatrical performance called uh, clinical trials, but they were actually not real. They, were, they did not, um, you know, based on the laws that are used here and invoked in this process, the clinical trials are not required at all. Uh, and, and in fact, they cannot be conducted. So for those of us who believed, or maybe still believe, that the pharmaceutical companies, the FDA, or the CDC conducted any kind of meaningful clinical trials, Sasha is revealing that they did not actually do any clinical trials at all. It was all theater perpetrated under contract with the DOD. I mean, that's one of, there's many, there's many really troubling parts of the story. We'll, we'll, we'll unpack a few of them. But that one stands out to me perhaps at the top of the list is the theatrics that were put in place for these trials. So there were human beings in many ways being used as props to paint the veneer that they were somehow going through deep trials to make sure that we were all safe with these vaccines. And you have, I know there was, a, for instance, a 13-year-old girl. Uh, they, in fact, had an ad, the Va- Vaccine uh, Safety Council had put out an ad that was going to run during the Super Bowl. Then it was yanked by Comcast. They wouldn't allow it to air, which shows a perfectly healthy 13-year-old girl who went through this particular trial and then ended up having all sorts of adverse events. So these people were used as props, essentially, right? Yes, exactly. And so the the clinical trial subjects were deceived. uh, And but importantly, most of the clinical trial sites and investigators were also deceived and most of the FDA employees were deceived because this um, particular scam is driven from the top. Only few people, as far as I understand, at the top of these organizations, the Department of Defense, um, HHS, FDA, BARDA, um, their legal uh, counsels, they know but then the rest of the regular employees and rank and file, and especially clinical trial subjects, of course, were kept in the dark. And in fact, under Obama administration Cures Act, 
um, amended, I believe, the uh, emergency use authorization, or the, not the emergency, the, the uh, informed consent requirements, such that subjects don't have to be necessarily informed of what's going on if it's deemed not in their best interest. And so again, through, uh, you know, it's too long to go into the legal history. There is very extensive research, uh, hundreds of pages of documents on legal history of this, but the, the laws that they're invoking to run this program do not require informed consent uh, and also do not require the clinical trials. So the people, and they're not under I'm sorry, this is un unbelievable. So the people involved in these trials they don't need to be informed about what is happening? Yes, exactly. So the, the informed consent rules have been amended under Obama to say that if it's not in the best interest of the subject, who decides if, it's, <laughs> if it is or it isn't? We have to understand the nuance here. Under the Obama rules, drug companies, government officials, and medical practitioners do not have to disclose to the clinical trial participants the thousands of potential adverse events that they could experience for participating in the trial, up to and including death and severe disability, just as long as it's deemed to be not in the best interest of the participant. Well, Sasha asked a good question about who makes that decision that it is not in their best interest, and the obvious answer is everyone involved but the participant. And here is the nuance. If there is a very high likelihood that the participant will be adversely affected in some way by participating in the trial, then from the perspective of the trial operators, it clearly is not in the participant's best interest to know that they could be harmed and suffer all that psychological stress and trauma. So they aren't told about it. Everyone who voluntarily takes the inoculation, including children, becomes a de facto participant in a massive worldwide drug trial, and no one has to be informed of the risks or even that there are risks. Maybe this is why the adverse event inserts for the COVID vaccine were left intentionally blank. But that's what it says. So, you know, this, these types of things can be concealed from people that this, this actually under, um, under emergency use authorization used during public health emergency, this is very critical. That's why they keep extending public health emergency beyond any, we don't have any emergency, but they keep extending it. Why? Because they need this. Under public health emergency, emergency use authorized um, these kinds of medications, countermeasures, that's a, that's a key word. These are not vaccines, they're countermeasures. So all these three together, they can use it this way. They don't have to inform the subjects what it is. They can use a lot of secrecy. They don't have to run clinical trials. They're not required because these products cannot be investigational products. That's what the law says. If they cannot be investigational products, then we don't have any investigation. We don't have any clinical trial subjects. So that's that's how they they're pulling this off. So it's at the Pentagon. It's at the Department of Defense. You talked about countermeasures. And of mm -hmm. course, we think what we all think of immediately is foreign threat, right? That this is you're dealing with the Pentagon, right? It's supposed to protect mm -hmm. us against foreign adversaries. So how is COVID a foreign adversary and how is this being run through, through the Pentagon? That's a great question. So uh, from the very beginning, it turns out that the Trump administration and subsequently Biden administration treated this uh, COVID as war, as an act of war, because the National Security Council is setting COVID response policy, which is National Security Council doesn't have any health, um, health uh, department representatives, only uh, defense and intelligence. And so, uh, so National Security Council sets policy for COVID. Uh, HHS is not setting policy. HHS is not lead 
um, agency in response of it, they're managing information. Um, so there, so the, the top of the government is treating it as an act of war. And they're telling all of us, oh, it's a health event. It's a naturally evolved virus jumped from a bat. And don't even mention, uh, you know, lab creation because you'll be canceled on social media immediately and censored, right? So right from the start, we have huge deception going on. What in fact they're treating as war, they're telling people it's health event. Once we understand that it is the DOD that is in charge of COVID policy and not health and human services, and that it is being treated as an act of war to be managed by the Department of Defense as a countermeasure, how from that point on can anyone believe anything that the government tells them? The government has obviously and brazenly lied to us. But even more remarkable than the inoculation being an act of war is that this act of war was waged by the DOD and the American government against the world's population. And American citizens are members of this population group. And we learned from the Twitter files, Sasha, just this past week, the latest round of Twitter files, that the Biden administration was actively going after and trying to censor anybody who talked about lab leak theories uh, and talked about Wuhan lab. And we're going after this idea that this came from a bad, came out of a lab. And so they were actively trying to censor that narrative. Um, and so this was all coordinated. And we know that multiple agencies were actively, of course, going after Twitter and social media companies and trying to uh, trying to keep this quiet. In these documents, does your research show, I mean, just how deeply does this go? And how, how widespread is the Pentagon's tentacles in this? Does it reach to, to Dr. Fauci? Does it reach to... Um, other main agencies. Well, yes. So they're all um, they're all in fact coordinating this. In fact, there is um, they even set up in 2013. So by the way, the, the planning goes pre-planning goes years, at least 2012, 2013, based on the contracts and based on uh, the documents that I, I have uncovered. So, for example, there is Pandemic Enterprise. Uh, it's a quasi quasi private quasi government enterprise that's been set up in 2013 that involves 10 heads of federal agencies. Uh, it's called PEMC, uh, the, the abbreviation. And uh, so, so 10 heads of federal agencies, including Department of Defense, HHS, FDA, NIH, uh, Department of Agriculture, uh, Energy, Veterans Affairs. Uh, so all of them together get together and secretly discuss these kinds of countermeasures very secretly so the, the there is their memorandum of understanding pasted uh, on on uh, on fda's website and most of it 90 percent of it deals with how we're going to keep everything secret between each other all the confidentiality disclosures how we're going to communicate about this so so we have this cabal form with a lot of secrecy and a lot of procedures to maintain secrecy about pandemic responses in 2013. It's almost like they and knew then, this was coming. I mean, I, this is where we talk about conspiracy theories on this show. I mean, we and it, it, it's all true. I mean, this is unbelievable. So all, it's, there it is, all in 2013, it's all laid out. It's, it's laid out how they're going to, to keep everything secret. And I, and I, and I wonder why a, 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 what's supposed to be a health event is so secret from the public. So how, how is this even, you know, so, so then, so then they're treating it as war. Then again, telling us it's health. So here we go. So they're, they're covering up military activity with this representation of health event and health response to a health threat. 
So, uh, so that's where people are not informed right away and, and being deceived. And then, um, you know, because they've, they've invoked these set of laws and they're using countermeasures, not even vaccines. So countermeasures are not pharmaceutical products. Countermeasures is a, it's all different category. So FDA to be clear, to be clear, then it's not technically a vaccine, right? It's no, it's just a countermeasure. Countermeasure and specifically Department of Defense ordered them from private manufacturers as prototypes. So people were never told, oh, come over, get injected with countermeasure prototype. Were they? No, and they weren't told that, right? Because as you pointed out, they were not on a need to know basis, right? So they didn't have to have informed consent. So here's a prototype we're going to inject you with, just like the 13-year-old girl we featured at the beginning here and talked about. Mm -hmm. Would, Would her family have allowed that if they knew that this was just a prototype? Absolutely not. No, people were told, oh, this is vaccine. This is safe and effective. It's been tested rigorously. By the way, no testing of safety have been done. They, they have not done any animal trials. They have not completed any animal trials, not, not even started them before they started mass injecting people in human trials. And that's a complete violation of all regulations everywhere in the world, in, you know, including FDA. And uh, again, nobody was told that. They said, oh, it's been tested. It's been in development. We've done clinical, preclinical trials. And they've done none. They just went straight into people and injecting uh, this girl who is now paralyzed, as far as I understand. This young girl is paralyzed, and that's a tragedy. But I don't want you to miss the key word in this clip, which it seems like everyone is missing. It's the word prototype. Most people, when they hear this word, think of a vaccine prototype because that's what they were told they were taking. But it's not a vaccine prototype because it's not a vaccine. It's a technology prototype ordered by the DOD. The inoculation posing as a vaccine is a form of biotechnology that has been emplaced within our bodies to construct devices that communicate with centralized computer systems controlled by others, which then instruct the devices to modify the form and function of parts of our body for the purpose of modifying and controlling human behavior and capabilities. It's a prototype because the final version of the technology has yet to be determined. That's why it was so urgent for the governments of the world to get the shots into our bodies, millions of adverse events notwithstanding. They have a new world order to construct that will bring the Antichrist to power, and your quaint ideas about rights and governmental protections will not in any way impede their plans. While the bioweapon is a prototype, it's also a countermeasure that is used to destroy or disable an enemy weapon, that weapon being your body and the mind that controls it. This is the technology that will end all life on earth unless Jesus comes to stop it, which is what Jesus was referring to in Matthew 24 when he said, For then there will be great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor shall ever be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. The flesh is being modified, and the modification process needs to stop if any people or even animals are to be saved. Of course, that's only true if we are in the lead-up to the final days before the return of Jesus Christ. And if we are there, what should we expect to be the next sign of his coming? Matthew 24, verse 7. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And that means ethnic and national wars. Add to that the parallel passage of Revelation 2.10. Do not fear any of these things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. And finally, the parallel passage of Revelation 6 verse 4. 
Another horse, Fiery Red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. So the next sign will be events that trigger local and worldwide chaos and warfare between ethnic and national groups. Civil wars will erupt in many places, producing severe hardships and terror, and ethnic conflicts will rage everywhere. Governments will respond to the violence by imposing martial law, taking the opportunity to find and incarcerate many of the people who have resisted the government's edicts, particularly Christians. And what could cause the entire world to explode into violence and chaos all at once? Maybe it will be the collective realization among the world's populations that their governments have conspired with each other to systematically eliminate a large percentage of the human population while enslaving the rest. It will eventually become obvious even to the most ardent government supporters because it's impossible for governments to murder 7 to 8 billion people without drawing attention to themselves. Hitler only wanted to eliminate Jews from the earth, but that effort drew a lot of attention despite their only making up 1% of the population. After Germany fell, the fascists fled to the nations who had defeated them and rebranded themselves as reformed Nazis. They never abandoned their quest for global domination, and to keep things going, joined secret societies where they could privately discuss the best way to continue their quest. It was obvious that large numbers of people posed a threat to this group because large numbers of people cannot be easily controlled. Before they could return to power, they would have to eliminate a large percentage of the world's population and establish some mechanism to control the rest. Killing and controlling fell into the category of weapon systems, so they set about developing them. What they came up with was the most ideal weapon system of all time, one that could kill billions, enslave millions, and if everything went well, liberate thousands from the bonds and cords that tie them to death and to God. Planning for the deployment of this weapon system began years ago in America, but before they could use it, they first had to lay the legal framework to protect themselves from the hordes. Attorney Todd Callender explains this step on the SGT report. IRB waiver, this is dated 2017, guys. IRB waiver of alteration of informed consent for clinical investigations involving no more than minimal risk to human subjects. This was their attempt to give themselves a pass on, uh -huh. on informed yes. consent, Todd? Yes, that's exactly right. In fact, the the, the funny part about this, and, and I know because we litigated this issue, my law partner, Dave Wilson, actually made this point to the Tenth Circuit in our oral, oral arguments which is that it was an impossibility that Comirnaty was ever approved by the FDA because the, the day that they theoretically approved this thing, they revoked its marketing. Why? Because you can't get the final approval for any drug until it's been through the institutional review process, the institutional review board. That's what this is. The IRB is designed to look after the people that could be injured by it. And in the case of Pfizer and Moderna in particular, um, neither had even started their IRB process. They were years and years away from ever doing it. And to this day, there is no Comirnaty um, licensed by the FDA. That's It's all a facade. It's all a joke. And so you see the lineup. You see the pretext here. As far back as 2017, which is the same year the World Bank was financing COVID-19 test kits, the PCR test kits for disease that wasn't needed COVID-19 until March of 2020. So they were setting everybody up that there weren't going to be any informed consent requirements. And the reality is the fix was already in. Why? Because biologics, gene modification, what they call gene therapy is separately regulated. The FDA doesn't regulate that. It doesn't go through the investigative new drug process. It goes through the health and human services process, which is different. And effectively, it's non-existent. 
the the informed consent rules are effectively non-existent how and why do we know this because there is a special memorandum issued by the attorney general of the united states to one mr donald rumsfeld in 2005 whereby the military started doing genetic engineering super soldier program on our troops and the memo says well if they know or could know about it that's good enough right all, all this whole idea about these are the risks and you should know this and we're modifying your genes and all that out the window it's gone Not that many people who took the bioweapon masquerading as a vaccine understood the concept of informed consent, but just to make sure that no liability could fall back on the vaccine deployers, they changed the rules about consent. With that technicality out of the way, they set about deploying the countermeasure weapon. You might remember these shots all had um, lipid nanoparticles, little bombers covered in fat that slip inside of a nucleus and they spill their contents to effectuate the gene modification. So there were really four players in this marketplace. You had Pfizer, Moderna, and they used what they called messenger RNA. In reality, it was synthetic RNA, right? Genetically modified synthetic RNA. And then you had two other players, Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca. AstraZeneca sold throughout Europe and the rest of the world. They didn't sell in the United States. So a lot of Americans don't know about it, but they both use adenovirus as a means by which they would effectuate the same thing. And they piggyback synthetic DNA instead of synthetic RNA inside of those little bombers. And, um, And we really discovered this because... As part of our evidence, we came upon something called the, compen- the Compendium of Gene Modification. And it's a two-part series. It's about, yay think, like a Sears Roebuck catalog. And you can flip through it. They have six different ways that they can deliver your genetic modification into a human subject. Um, and it's all for sale. You just have to tell them what you want, what kind of nasty pathogens you want in your little bomber, and they'll make sure that that gets inside of the, the targets, the victims, as I like to call them. So all of this they've been working on for decades. It was all set up, um, all very secret, and you just get glimpses into how much they prepared when you find out Operation Warp Speed. That's, that's a DOD program. They actually started it in 2016, the year Mr. Trump was elected. They had started it irrespective of Mr. Trump. I doubt he even knew it existed. Um, All of this was their playbook. And that's when those four years that Mr. Trump spent caused so much chaos. (laughs) Adenovirus, RNA, it doesn't matter. They they do the exact same thing and they, they, they cut their concentration risk by having two manufacturers using two different means of delivering the very same types of pathogens. Yes, they had their playbook ready to go when Hillary took office, except the fix at the polling places didn't work quite as well as they had planned, and she ended up losing. It was a shock to everyone because the cheating system was in place even in 2016, but it wasn't robust enough to overcome Trump's incredible popularity, something the globalist overlords hadn't anticipated. Hillary had every expectation of being elected president, and the look of puzzled unbelief was clearly on her face when she heard she was not. Then the anger came when they realized that their timetable was going to be thrown off. They quickly changed plans to try to tie up Trump in Congress, in the courts, in an impeachment hearing after impeachment hearing, partly to keep him from running for office a second time, and partly to keep him from further damaging their preparations and timeline. He was a loose cannon who could cause a lot of damage if he went off, so they made sure that wouldn't happen by infiltrating his inner circle of advisors and cabinet officials with bought and well-paid-for officials who would contain and control him from the inside. Trump's unexpected victory notwithstanding, the DOD weapon deployment kicked off in 2016, which indicates the degree of planning that had already gone into it. Even in 2016, they had a three-step plan in place. 
deploy the hardware system to modify human bodies from the inside, build the software system to control the hardware that would be on the inside of our bodies, and build the interface system that would connect the computer software and the weapons control centers with the hardware that was in our bodies. But Trump threw a monkey wrench into that carefully planned weapon system deployment just by taking up space in the Oval Office. They needed some way to work around him, so they deployed the COVID-19 pathogen and took advantage of the annual flu season to frighten the public. That gave them the excuse to immediately start manufacturing and distributing the bioweapon vaccine, all with Trump's blessing. While the inoculations delivered the hardware system they needed to put into human bodies, massive AI computer centers were constructed around the world to run the software. To connect the Internet of Bodies to the central controlling computers, the 5G system was constructed across the world, supposedly during one of the worst pandemics of all time. At the same time, another critical component was built, which is called the Starlink Satellite Network System. It's Elon Musk's satellite system. Both of these systems were deployed under various DoD contracts. I think they collaborate together. Uh, yeah, wireless body area networks. And, and again, we um, we'd found all of the documentation. These are scientific papers. They're peer-reviewed. They're published. You can find them for yourself. Type in wireless body area network. And what you'll come to find is eventually you get to what we came to find. Lisa dug up that our government created the SARS-CoV-1 um, pathogen all the way back in 2003, and they patented it. And when you read through the, the summary of the patent, it says it's effectively a software installation. The idea is that this thing will create an enhancement of the ability to detect and, and gather information from a person's wireless body area network. Um, SARS-CoV-2, our government also owns that. Um, same thing, software installation, access to biorhythms, access to um, the electronic signals that our bodies put out, um, low energy output, as they call it. And then you find the spike protein. Our government also owns that one. What does it do? It's a means of delivering the software upgrades, if you could imagine that. So the, and, and what were the shots? The hardware installation, right? The actual chips. You hear Elon Musk saying, yeah, we're going to have to install chips in people's brains. Hogwash. They've already done it. That's what the shots were for. Those were the hardware installations. And so the, the weird part about this is that when you finally understand all the different pieces to the puzzle, it's like, you got to be kidding me. What they've done is effectively turn people into computers, self-powered computers that they can access and use for themselves. How is that any different from what Bill Gates did? It's not. So what did they do? They put three different HIV proteins into the shots to eradicate people's natural biological defenses to pathogens. And they replaced killer T cells with B cells. That's actually computer programs. And so they made antiviral software for computers and they installed those in the people with that hardware installation. Um, and now what do you see exploding cancer rates? Why? Because the killer T cells are what control cancer. But the, the, the people behind this don't care. All they want is their, their matrix style cloud computing nodes, and power output. And that's what they've done. Again, if people haven't seen this, you think I'm joking. First and foremost, look at the Bill Gates patent. It's um, 060606 issued in 2020, World Patent Office. Um, and it says we're going to turn people into cloud computing nodes, battery and power sources. Um, lo and behold, go to inpersona.com right now, today, and you too can start using your biorhythms to mine cryptocurrency exactly as Bill Gates and Microsoft had patented as being their property.
right? All of this has fit together. All of this was done with our tax dollars. You've got CDC, FDA, and other gangsters in this public-private partnership that are receiving royalties. For what? For harnessing you as a new slave species. So whether you got, and I think this is the question you're getting, whether you got an mRNA shot or an adenovirus shot. So adenovirus being Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca, the law is still the same. If you were genetically modified, if you're genetically manipulated into a synthetic product, the purpose of gene modification, you're owned by the patent holders and they are using you and they are going to use your biorhythms and they're going to use you as a power source and a cloud computing node because they already are. That's already in place. And when you look at the wireless body area network, you can type into that search function um, about using people as power sources. Lo and behold, they're doing it right now. It's already done. It's already out there. Peer review papers, scientific, and you wonder why everybody's so tired. You wonder why there are 14 two-inch thick cables, um, copper cables going into the wireless app, apparatus, the wireless arrays, um, 5G towers and mass. You wonder why everybody was locked down for two, three years, um, except for the essential workers that were installing these things. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the matrix is here, Sean. Mm-hmm. We're in an open-air matrix prison right now. Okay, this might not be familiar material to some listeners, so let me clarify what the patents describe and what the researchers have found in human bodies that support what the patents say. The bombers that Todd spoke about are the lipid nanoparticle packages that were in all the vaccines. We've covered how these work on past episodes. The lipid part of the system are fatty materials that encapsulate the nanoparticle to enable it to penetrate cell walls and cell nuclei anywhere in the body. The nanoparticle inside the fatty membrane is a nanoscale hardware component of synthetic DNA or RNA that is released into the cell. It contains data that are spliced into the cell's DNA to change its instructions. The cell then produces whatever the edited code tells it to produce, sometimes including more nanoparticles. These nanoparticles circulate throughout the body and combine to form structures that are new and foreign to the body. These structures scavenge building material from the surrounding tissues, including blood, to expand their structure and start new structures in other parts of the body. These structures are powered internally by cesium and from external microwave energy sources. These injectable nanoparticle packages can penetrate any tissue, including the blood-brain barrier, so they can take up residence anywhere in the body. To get as much of this stuff inside our bodies as possible, the government tried to establish a vaccine schedule of regular inoculations. When the public balked, they changed their approach. Since the technology has advanced so quickly, they included it in other types of materials to get it into reluctant bodies. It is a component of airborne particulates that we inhale via chemtrails, called smart dust. It's included in organic material in food and beverages, and it's been incorporated into existing injectable materials such as childhood vaccines, dental novocaine, and maintenance drugs such as insulin. Once inside the body, these materials build structures that monitor our internal neural activity and physical condition, our heart rate, blood pressure, etc. Sending that data to a nearby device, such as a smartphone, tablet, or iWatch, which then relays it via an area network to an AI computer system somewhere in the world. That gives the people who control the computers almost unlimited control over our bodies. Or, as Yuval Noah Harari said, the people who control the data will control the world. That data enables them to know where you are at every moment of every day because your body is emitting a continuous signal to nearby devices that specify your location. They know who you are because you have a unique code ID. 
They are monitoring your neural activity, which is being mapped in order to directly read your thoughts, understand your emotions, anticipate your inclinations, and monitor your beliefs. Because these structures incorporate two-way transmissions, the internal components inside our bodies can be controlled from the wireless system outside our bodies. Soon, the people who control that system will be able to affect our perceptions and thoughts by stimulating neurons in our brains or by interfering with them. The next step after that will be to gain control over our bodies by controlling the nerves that control our muscles, including our heart. If you are a good slave, they will reward you with enjoyable hallucinations and sensations. But if you're a troublesome slave, they can torment you with frightening hallucinations and sensations or even kill you by stopping your heart. This weapon system is the ultimate slave enforcement tool. So those who control the system will literally be able to control humanity and force us to do or experience or endure anything they want us to. This is why deployment of the weapon system was so important and was prioritized even with Trump in the office. These people have been coveting this kind of control for decades, and they have finally developed the technology enough to almost taste it. They just needed it deployed. While many of the capabilities of this weapon are not yet ready because they are still being constructed, there is one thing that they can do right now. They can use your neurons as part of a huge area-wide neural network computer system. Every person who has these components installed in them is literally part of the most secure and largest computing system on Earth. The person who altered our bodies to emplace this system can rent out our bodies as part of this computing system and make money off of us even if the process of making money degrades our health or threatens our well-being. That is what Todd was referring to when he said we are owned by somebody as soon as we are genetically modified. The courts have already ruled on this. Just like a rice plant is owned by someone as soon as its genes are modified, so are we. They don't care that millions of people were harmed or killed in the process of deploying this ultimate genetic modification weapon system because there's a war taking place and there are casualties in war. Listen to this description of the side effects of this weapon system and how these effects were determined by our government. One more document that Todd sent me, I think you're going to find very telling. Cumulative, by the way, Todd, this sounds like it was written by an attorney. Cumulative analysis of post-authorization adverse event reports of PF07, you guys get the idea, received through 28 February 2021. All right, we're going to jump to the chase. You guys want to yeah. see the truth in a 38-page document about potential adverse reactions? Let's just zip down to page 29, shall we? The Appendix 1 list of adverse events of special interest. Yeah. Otherwise known as side effects. Yeah. Just take your time and read these guys. It's all been alphabetized for your reading pleasure. About nine pages. 1,291 is the count. (laughs) And there's 1,291 side effects. That 1,291 diseases that the test subjects went home with before they showed up for the test. The worst part um it is a couple of things first this was forty-four thousand service members and their families little kids pregnant women an 82 percent spontaneous abortion rate caused by these shots that's one of the side effects that's in there one third of those new diseases those people didn't go to the trial with were genetic diseases genetic modification genetic defect diseases um and I think the worst part of this is, according to our expert witnesses, these are military people trained in what they call C-burn, chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear weapons at Fort Detrick. It would have taken years to prepare the test to know if somebody had these diseases because they're so unusual. 
Like two thirds of those doctors we know have never seen them in their practice. One third of those they've never even heard of. Um, we're just now on the on the the very brink of the age of genetic modification. One third of those are genetic defects. So the the military who launched this, who tested on their own, by the way, must have taken years to prepare the test to know. So the, what this was, the 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 test at C four five nine one thousand one. Look it up for yourself. This was a test of a weapons platform. They did a weapon installation, a biological, chemical weapon installation, and radiological because there's uh, cesium-137 in it. This is C-burn. Um, they did a test on 44,000 people, including kids, pregnant women, and that's the result of it. 1,291 side effects, new diseases. And by the way, that's missing the, 21, the 20 that they knew were in advance, right, including death, myocarditis, pericarditis, strokes, thrombosis, those they knew about, right? But these are the ones that they were surprised to find, or maybe not surprised because they set the test up to do this. This is the worst kind of Nuremberg violations, the worst kind of, of egregious behavior that all of humanity agreed was universally repugnant, such that we wrote conventions, the International um, Convention on Human Rights, Article 7 says you can't experiment on people. Um, the International Convention on Civil and Political Rights, you Article 7, again, you can't experiment on people. And then, of course, the Nuremberg Codex itself, all of that went out the window. And what did you start this whole podcast with? The, the Institutional Review Board is going to do away with informed consent. What does that mean? That means that your human rights are no more. Those human rights were ensconced in the international treaty, meaning the whole world found those to be rights given by God, and they were revoked. You have no rights. If and, and we've graduated now, Sean. That we're now into the war on viruses. We're going to do a symposium coming up in the next couple of weeks where a lot of doctors, learning people are saying there aren't any viruses. Why is that important? Because governments around this world have declared a war on viruses, and they can make the allegation that everybody has a virus in them. And for that reason, they have given to themselves the authority to eradicate viruses. So sorry if that virus happens to be in you when we eradicate it. In other words, they've given themselves the ability, the legal ability to eradicate us. We are the virus. I can't sum it up any better than that. We are the virus, and the war on viruses is just about to ramp up. Some people somewhere have developed an extremely elaborate plan for world domination involving most, if not all, of the world's governments, including the most powerful militaries in the world, international corporations, international banks, and international institutions like the United Nations and the World Health Organization. And who controls all of these organizations? As I said from early in this podcast, all of these organizations are tools of the world, the world being the social, political, economic, and military system that was constructed to advance the agenda of Satan. This is the beast system that is being built in front of our eyes, and we Americans are right in the heart of the beast. And we thought that America was a great place to be. How do you think God sees America now? But there's even more. Those 1,400 side effects of the bioweapon that's masquerading as a vaccine were determined by subjecting 50,000 military personnel and their families to experimentations without properly providing informed consent because Donald Rumsfeld wrote a memo that said it's okay to experiment on people as long as they know, or should know, that there might be side effects to the experimentation. That's good enough to give it to your kids. And who determines if they should know? Why, the experimenters, of course. 
Do you think that 50,000 military people and their children and pregnant wives would sign up to be medically experimented on if they knew that they could suffer an irreparable side effect that would debilitate them for life or even kill them? Well, yes, of course they would, says Joseph Mengele to Donald Rumsfeld. So I guess that test was met. And we are the product, right? Because death is a great business if you make the weapons of war or bioweapons sold as vaccines. Because look at this market they've created for themselves with this bioweapon. Now they've invested $43 billion in Seijin, a company that evidently has a promising cancer product, but my understanding is they've never had an approved product for this. But anyway, $43 billion bet by Pfizer because they think cancer's about to explode, which it, <laughs> which it is, turbo cancer, right? right. Dr. William Mackis reporting about it all day long over on Twitter, Todd. Well, we just talked about it. They destroyed the killer T cells. Three separate HIV proteins, AD5, the PP14, the GP120, were in all four of those major manufacturers of the shots. They purposely killed their immune system. And, and it's it's weird how it goes. If you got one shot, about a third of your immunity is gone. Two shots, another third. Three shots, you have no more immunity. And this is where the turbo cancer comes in. If your T cells are gone, the cancer explodes. And that's why you're seeing this. And and um, and then they wonder, they, they, they make a bet that the, the cancer is going to explode. They freaking knew because they planned it. Yeah, they planned it as far back, at least as far back as that lockstep document from Rockefeller. Ah, Rockefeller Foundation. Is that circa 2011 or 13? I forget. But uh, more than 10 years ago. 2011. And in, in 1980, Maurice Hillman, the, the father of vaccinology working for Merck, is on video laughing, um, and I have it, and I'll share it with you, laughing about how he's giving all the Russian athletes cancer with this SB40 gene that he's putting into the MMR shots. So everybody that got the MMR shots from 1980 has already been given cancer thanks to that guy, and he thinks it's funny. That's how long we've been poisoned. And and what does it make sense? Think about this. 1994, the world's governments did get together in Cairo, Egypt. They said 7 billion people got to go. How are we going to do that? We don't want them to live too long. Um, and by the way, we don't want them to reproduce. We'll just give them vaccines. Bill Gates said it himself. If we do a really good job in vaccines, you know, we can do health care. We can, we can do family planning and we can get that number down to zero. They're telling us to our faces what they're doing. They're making people sterile. They're giving people cancer with these time-delayed diseases. Um, and then we wonder why it is they're so anxious to get shots in our arm. They'll give us a freaking Krispy Kreme to go get a shot. How stupid do we have to be? Oh, and now, by the way, the CDC's recommended vaccines for the child, right? Every state requires them. Well, if you want to make sure that everybody gets sick and you could charge them you know, for treatment of their cancer, if you want to make sure everybody didn't live past 76, hmm, who has it said that? If you want to make sure that you could get rid of 7 billion people and that they would effectively commit suicide, how would you do that? We're living it. This is, this is it. Wake up, smell the coffee. You are in it. You are in the depopulation program right now. That's it. We are in it. Revelation 6 and Matthew 24 talk a lot about depopulation, although they may not phrase it quite that way. But they make it clear that large percentages of the Earth's population are going to die during the tribulation period. So why are these people doing this? What is their actual objective in establishing a slave system? The real objective was stated in Matthew 24, verse 37. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. 
And how was it in the days of Noah? Genesis 4 verses 4 and 5. There were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and bore children to them. Those were the mighty men of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In the days of Noah, the fallen angels interbred with human women and animals and produced the hybrid monsters that the Bible calls Nephilim. They were unmatched in size and power, and but for God, humanity would have been lost to them. The interbreeding of angels who had corporeal bodies with women and animals corrupted the genetic purity of mankind and animals and resulted in the intensification and concentration of evil in the hearts of mankind. That evil spread into the minds of men and women who then transformed that evil into actions. The whole intent of the fallen angels was to dominate, pervert, and corrupt God's creation, especially mankind. And if the angels couldn't have humanity as their personal playthings, then they would destroy them. And that is their ultimate purpose today. They want to destroy mankind, and they are trying to do it through this globalist plan of transhumanism. Let's hear one last clip from that interview. For anybody, including any researchers who say uh, transhumanism is not possible, God <laughs> wouldn't allow for that. Well, there it know, is. These people want to topple there God. You go, stop there. They're at stop war with God. And this document is something everybody should uh, know exists. That, that says it all. The bots, the Borgs, and the humans. Those are different things. Right? Who and who are the Borgs? Oh, those are the vaccinated people. What year is that? 2025. Hey, that's next year. I mean, please look through this, people. I beg you to look through this because they lay it all out. This was written, pardon me, in 2001 by NASA and Langley. Langley is the CIA, and they have this joint, they have a partnership. How about that? A joint agreement where they can do uh, modeling and exploration, and they do it through other transaction authority. Lo and behold, what does that mean? That means they don't have to get congressional approval. It means means like they can do all this behind the scenes. And how did they produce all those COVID shots? Right? It was a military operation, and they did it through other transaction authorities, so none of it would appear anywhere. These are secret contracts. These are secret programs, and this is what DARPA uses to do it. And they do it through partnerships. Who had the partnership? Oh, HHS and the DOD had a secret partnership. What was that partnership? To make bioweapons called the shots. That's what it was. And when you look at Pfizer, you look at Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, those companies were simply engaged by our government, by the Department of Defense, to make these bioweapons. And then the DOD deployed them, right? All those shots were being flown around the world, not just the United States, in C-5 galaxies, military aircraft were delivering those. It wasn't FedEx. Why? Because if you were going to kill 7 billion people per the 1994 Cairo population accords, wouldn't you make that a military operation? How else could you be so efficient? The biggest, most lethal killing machine the world has ever known, the U.S. Department of Defense. And guess what? It's what I testified to the Croatian parliament about. The, the public health responsibility is now a DOD function. It was moved under the Defense Health Agency that 6,000 uniformed medical people, um, one of whom is our whistleblower, uh, Lieutenant Mark Bashaw, he's one of them. Um, it's a DOD responsibility. And uh, Tedros Adnan, the director of the World Health Organization right now, is screaming at the top of his lungs, no, the international health regulations, the amendments don't say this. They do say this, that... Um, He's now in charge of our DOD. 
when the, the magic words, public health emergency of international concern, six magic words, when those are uttered by him, our military, the US DOD, is, is his thuggery. He can deploy them because we granted him that authority in the National Defense Authorization Acts from 2019 to 2023. That is the testimony I provided um, the Croatian parliament. I laid it all out with all the documents that go with it. And why did I do that? Because every government in the world followed the same model. That the, the, the only final exclusion, the only safeguard to your human rights was eliminated by virtue of public health. It's written into everybody's laws. Your rights are extinguished upon a public health emergency. Talk about planning. I mean, it, it took not less than 50 years to get this in, in, in law across the United States. And there it sits. 50 years of planning is all it took. In less than half a century, they have destroyed the legal basis of a free America and begun the process of destroying free governments from across the world. It all will be destroyed, and from the ashes shall rise something that isn't Jesus Christ. It's the Phoenix, the Antichrist. Those who claim they are Jews but are not will offer us immortality through human transformation if we join them. All it will take is a little worship of the one who will make that transformation possible, the Antichrist. So if you listened to episode 53 and wondered why Jesus would oversee so much destruction of the earth when he returns, this is why. The level of evil being constructed that will be unleashed on the world by the government is almost unimaginable. The Great Reset will occur not when Klaus Schwab and his friends take over, that will just be a return to the days of Noah. The Great Reset will occur when Jesus Christ and his armies completely destroy what the globalists are currently building. Pay attention to the signs, Jesus said, so that when those days of evil arrive, we won't panic and fall for the Antichrist's temptations and deception, because those who do will never see the kingdom of heaven. If you found this podcast interesting, useful, or important, please recommend it to someone you know and punch that sign symbol or button to encourage others to listen. Underground Christian can be heard on several fine podcast platforms, including Podbean, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, TuneIn, iHeart, Player FM, Listen Notes, Pandora, Samsung Podcasts, Podchaser, and UndergroundChristian.net. If you wish to contact me, please send an email to undergroundchristian at outlook.com. Oh, Lord God, when we are children, the world is a fascinating adventure. When we are young men and women, the world is filled with opportunities and hope. We think people are mostly good, and we are great. But as we get older, the reality of existence beats on our heart. We realize we are wretched, and we are attracted to wretched things. We are weak, and we just want comfort and convenience. We're obsessed, not with you and your righteousness, but with ourselves and our wickedness. We look around, and we see darkness everywhere. Where did all the good people go? Why is everyone corrupt and seeking for their own gain? Why do good men perish and rotten men prosper? When we are young, your admonition to hate the world and the things of the world is impossible. Make it possible when we're older and we can see why you say that. Put it into our hearts to believe it, feel it, and live it, and stretch out your hand to save as many as will be saved from the quicksand of wealth, fame, and power. And come quickly, Lord Jesus. Your world needs you. Bless those of us who stay here until your coming. And the people said, Amen. And other people said, Amen.